Chapter Sixteen, Part Three of a Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Paul King, pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj. A short account of the history of mathematics by W. W. Rouse Ball. Chapter sixteen The Life and Works of Newton Part three. In seventeen oh four Newton published his Optics, which contains the results of papers already mentioned. The first edition of this book were appended to two minor works which have no special connection with optics, one being on cubic curves, the other on the quadrature of curves and on fluxions. Both of them were old manuscripts with which his friends and pupils were familiar, but they were here published ubi et orbi for the first time. The first of these appendices is entitled Umeratio Linearum Tertio Ordinis, the object seems to be to illustrate the use of analytical geometry, and as the application to conics was well known, Newton selected the theory of cubics. He begins with some general theorems, and classifies curves according as to whether their equations are algebraical or transcendental, the former being cut by a straight line in a number of points, real or imaginary, equal to the degree of the curve the latter being cut by a straight line in an infinite number of points. Newton then shews that many of the most important properties of conics have their analogues in the theory of cubics, and he discusses the theory of asymptotes and curved linear diameters. After these general theorems, he commences his detailed examination of cubics by pointing out that a cubic must have at least one real point at infinity. If the asymptote or tangent at this point be a finite distance, it may be taken for the axis of y. This asymptote will cut the curve in three points altogether, of which at least two are at infinity. If the third point be a finite distance, then, by one of his general theorems on asymptotes, the equation can be written in the form of xy squared plus hy equals ax cubed plus bx squared plus cx plus d, where the axes of x and y are the asymptotes of the hyperbola, which is the locus of the middle points of all chords drawn parallel to the axis of y, while if on the third point in which this asymptote cuts the curve be also at infinity, the equation can be written in the form xy equals ax cubed plus bx squared plus cx plus d. Next, he takes the case where the tangent at the real point at infinity is not at a finite distance. A line parallel to the direction in which the curve goes to infinity may be taken as the axis of y. Any such line will cut the curve in three points altogether, of which one is by hypothesis at infinity and one is necessarily at a finite distance. He then shews that if the remaining point in which this line cuts the curve be at a finite distance, the equation can be written in the form y squared equals ax cubed plus bx squared plus cx plus d, 
while if it be at an infinite distance the equation can be written in the form y equals ax cubed plus bx squared plus cx plus d any cubic is therefore reducible to one of the four characteristic forms each of these forms is then discussed in detail and the possibility of the existence of double points isolated ovals etc is worked out the final result is that in all there are 78 possible forms which a cubic may take. Of these, Newton enumerated only 72. Four of the remainder were mentioned by Stirling in 1717, and one by Nicole in 1731, and one by Nicholas Bernoulli at about the same time. In the course of the work, Newton states the remarkable theorem that just as the shadow of a circle cast by a luminous point on a plane gives rise to all the conics so the shadows of the curves represented by the equation y squared equals ax cubed plus bx squared plus cx plus d give rise to all the cubics this remained an unsolved puzzle until seventeen thirty one when nicole and clairaut gave demonstrations of it a better proof is that given by Murdoch in 1740, which depends on the classification of these curves into five species according to as to whether their points of intersection with the axis of x are real and unequal, real and two of them equal, two cases, real and all equal, or finally two imaginary and one real. In this tract, Newton also discusses double points in the plane and at infinity and the description of curves satisfying given conditions and the graphical solution of problems by the use of curves the second appendix to the optics is entitled de quadratura curvarum most of it had been communicated to barrow in sixteen sixty eight or sixteen sixty nine and probably was familiar to newton's pupils and friends from that time onwards it consists of two parts. The bulk of the first part is a statement of Newton's method of effecting the quadrature and the rectification of curves by means of infinite series. It is noticeable as containing the earliest use in print of literal indices and also the first printed statement of the binomial theorem. But these are introduced only incidentally. The main object is to give rules for developing a function of x in a series of ascending powers of x so as to enable mathematicians to effect the quadrature of any curve in which the ordinate y can be expressed as an explicit algebraical function of the abscissa x. Wallace had shewn how this quadrature could be found when y was given as a sum of a number of multiples of powers of x, and Newton's rules of expansion here established rendered possible the similar quadrature of any curve whose ordinate can be expressed as a sum of an infinite number of such terms. In this way, he affects the quadrature of the curves y equals a squared divided by the quantity b plus x, y equals the square root of a squared plus or minus x squared or y equals the square root of x minus x squared or y equals the square root of 1 
minus ax squared divided by the square root of 1 minus bx squared. But the results are of course expressed as infinite series. He then proceeds to curves whose ordinate is given as an implicit function of the abscissa, and he gives a method by which y can be expressed as an infinite series in ascending powers of x. But the application of the rule to any curve demands in general such complicated numerical calculations as to render it of little value. He concludes this part by shewing that the rectification of a curve can be effected in a somewhat similar way. His process is equivalent to finding the integral with regard to x of the square root of 1 plus y squared in the form of an infinite series. I should add that Newton indicates the importance of determining whether the series are convergent, an observation far in advance of his time, but he knew of no general test for the purpose, and in fact it was not until Gauss and Cauchy took up the question that the necessity of such limitations were commonly recognized. The part of the appendix which I have just described is practically the same as Newton's manuscript De Analisi per Equationis Numero Temenorum Infinitas, which was subsequently printed in 1711. It is said that this was originally intended to form an appendix to Kinkhuysen's algebra. The substance of it was communicated to Barrow and by him to Collins in letters of July 31st and August 12th, 1669, and a summary of part of it was included in a letter of October 24th, 1676, sent to Leibniz. It should be read in connection with Newton's Methodus Differentialis, published in 1736. Some additional theorems are there given, and he discusses his method of interpolation, which had been briefly described in the letter of October 24, 1676. The principle is this. If y equals phi of x be a function of x, and if when x is successively put equal to a1, a2, and so on, the values of y be known, and be b1, b2, and so on, then a parabola whose equation is y equals p plus qx plus rx squared plus so on can be drawn through the points a1, b1, a2, b2, and so on, and the ordinate of this parabola may be taken as an approximation to the ordinate of the curve. The degree of the parabola will of course be one less than the number of the given points. Newton points out that in this way the areas of any curves can be approximately determined. The second part of this appendix to the optics contained in a description of Newton's method is fluxions. This is best considered in connection with Newton's manuscript on the same subject which was published by John Coulson in 1736 and of which it is a summary. The fluxional calculus is one form of the infinitesimal calculus expressed in a certain notation, just as the differential calculus is another aspect of the same calculus expressed in a different notation. Newton assumed that all geometrical magnitudes must be conceived as generated by continuous motion. Thus, a line may be considered as generated by the motion of a point, a surface by that of a line, a solid by that of a surface, a plane angle by the rotation of a line, and so on. The quantity thus generated was defined by him as the fluent or flowing quantity. 
the velocity of the moving magnitude was defined as the fluxion of the fluent this seems to be the earliest definite recognition of the idea of a continuous function though it had been foreshadowed in some of napier's papers the following is a summary of newton's treatment of fluxions there are two kinds of problems the object of the first is to find the fluxion of a given quantity or more generally the relation of the fluents being given to find the relation of their fluxions this is equivalent to differentiation the object of the second or inverse method of fluxions is from the fluxion or some relations involving it to determine the fluent or more generally an equation being proposed exhibiting the relation of the fluxions of quantities to find the relations of those quantities or fluents to one another this is equivalent either to integration which newton termed the method of quadrature or to the solution of a differential equation which was called by newton the inverse method of tangents the methods for solving these problems are discussed at considerable length newton then went on to apply these results to questions connected with the maxima and minima of quantities the method of drawing tangents to curves and the curvature of curves namely the determination of the centre of curvature the radius of curvature and the rate at which the radius of curvature increases he next considered the quadrature of curves and the rectification of curves in finding the maximum and minimum of functions of one variable we regard the change of sign of the difference between two consecutive values of the function as the true criterion but his argument is that when a quantity increasing has attained its maximum it can have no further increment or when decreasing it has attained its minimum and can have no further decrement consequently the fluxion must be equal to nothing it has been remarked that neither newton nor Leibniz produced a calculus that is a classified collection of rules and that the problems they discussed were treated from first principles that no doubt is the usual sequence in the history of such discoveries though the fact is frequently forgotten by subsequent writers in this case i think the statement so far as newton's treatment of the differential or fluxional part of the calculus is concerned is incorrect as the foregoing account sufficiently shews if a flowing quantity or fluent were represented by x newton denoted its fluxion by x dot and the fluxions of x dot or second function of x by x dot dot and so on similarly the fluent of x was denoted by x written in a box or sometimes by x prime or x inside square brackets the infinitely small part by which a fluent such as x increased in a small interval of time measured by omicron was called the moment of the fluent and its value was shown to be x dot omicron newton adds the important remark that thus we may in any problem neglect the terms multiplied by the second and higher powers of omicron and we can always find an equation between the coordinates of x y of a point on a curve and their fluxions x dot y dot it is an application of this principle which constitutes one of the chief values of calculus 
for if we desire to find the effect produced by several causes of a system then if we can find the effect produced by each cause when acting alone in a very small time the total effect produced in that time will be equal to the sum of the separate effects i should here note the fact that vince and other english writers in the eighteenth century used x dot to denote the increment of x and not the velocity with which it increased that is x dot in their writing stands for what newton would have expressed by x dot omicron and what Leibniz would have written as dx. I need not discuss in detail the manner in which Newton treated the problem above mentioned. I will only add that in spite of the form of his definition, the introduction into geometry of the idea of time was evaded by supposing that some quantity, e.g. the abscissa of a point on a curve, increased equably and the required results then depend on the rate at which other quantities e g the ordinate or the radius of curvature increased relatively to the one so chosen the fluent so chosen is what we now call the independent variable its fluxion was termed the principal fluxion and of course if it were denoted by x then x dot was constant and consequently x dot dot equaled zero there is no question that Newton used the method of fluxions in 1666, and it is practically certain that accounts of it were communicated in manuscript to friends and pupils from and after 1669. The manuscript, from which most of the above summary has been taken, is believed to have been written between 1671 and 1677, and to have been in circulation at Cambridge from that time onward. It was unfortunate that it was not published at once. Strangers at a distance naturally judged of the method by the letter to Wallace in 1692 or by the Tractatus de Quadratura Curverum and were not aware that it had been so completely developed at an earlier date. This was the cause of numerous misunderstandings. At the same time, it must be added that all mathematical analysis was leading up to the idea and methods of the infinitesimal calculus. Foreshadowings of the principles and even of the language of that calculus can be found in the writings of Napier, Kepler, Cavalieri, Pascal, Fermat, Wallace, and Barrow. It was Newton's good luck to come at a time when everything was ripe for the discovery and his ability enabled him to construct almost at once a complete calculus. The notation of the fluxional calculus is for most purposes less convenient than that of the differential calculus. The latter was invented by Leibniz in 1675 and published in 1684, some nine years before the earliest printed account of Newton's method of fluxions. But the question whether the general idea of the calculus expressed in that notation was obtained by Leibniz from Newton, or whether it was invented independently, gave rise to a long and bitter controversy. The leading facts are given in the next chapter. The question is one of considerable difficulty, but I will here only say that from what I have read of the voluminous literature on the question, I think on the whole it points to the fact that Leibniz obtained the idea of the differential calculus from a manuscript of Newton's which he saw in 1675. 
I believe, however, that the prevalent opinion is that the inventions were independent. The remaining events of Newton's life require little or no comment. In 1705 he was knighted. From this time onward he devoted much of his leisure to theology and wrote at great length on the prophecies and predictions, subjects which had always been of interest to him. His Universal Arithmetic was published by Whiston in 1707, and his Analysis by Infinite Series in 1711, but Newton had nothing to do with the preparation of either of these or the press. His evidence before the House of Commons in 1714 on the determination of longitude at sea marks an important epoch in the history of navigation. The dispute with Leibniz as to whether he had derived the ideas of the differential calculus from Newton or invented it independently originated about 1708 and occupied much of Newton's time, especially between the years 1709 and 1716. In 1709, Newton was persuaded to allow Cotes to prepare the long-talked-of second edition of the Principia. It was issued in March of 1713. A third edition was published in 1726 under the direction of Henry Pemberton. In 1725, Newton's health began to fail. He died on March 20, 1727, and eight days later was buried with great state in Westminster Abbey. His chief works, taking them in their order of publication, are The Principia, published in 1687, The Optics, with appendices on cubic curves, The Quadrature and Rectification of Curves by Use of the Infinite Series, and The Method of Fluxions, published in 1704 and the universal arithmetic published in 1707 the analysis per series fluxions etc published in 1711 lectiones optique published in 1729 method of fluxions etc i e newton's manuscript on fluxions translated by j colson and published in 1736 and the methodus differentialis also published in 1736 in appearance newton was short and towards the close of his life rather stout but well set with a square lower jaw brown eyes and a very broad forehead and a rather sharp features his hair turned gray before he was thirty and remained thick and white and silver till his death as to his manners he dressed slovenly was rather languid and was often so absorbed in his own thoughts as to be anything but a lively companion. Many anecdotes of his extreme absence of mind when engaged in any investigation have been preserved. Thus, once when riding home from Grantham, he dismounted to lead his horse up a steep hill. When he turned at the top to remount, he found that he had the bridle in his hand while his horse had slipped it and gone away. Again, on the few occasions when he sacrificed his time to entertain his friends, if he left them to get more wine or for any similar reason, he would as often as not be found after the lapse of some time working out a problem oblivious alike of his expectant guests and of his errand. He took no exercise, indulged in no amusements, and worked incessantly, often spending eighteen or nineteen hours out of the twenty-four in writing. 
in character he was religious and conscientious with an exceptionally high standard of morality having as bishop brunet said the whitest soul he ever knew newton was always perfectly straightforward and honest but in his controversies with leibniz hook and others though scrupulously just he was not generous and it would seem that he had frequently took offence at a chance of expression when none was intended he modestly attributed his discoveries largely to the admirable work done by his predecessors and once explained that if he had seen farther than other men it was only because he stood on the shoulders of giants he summed up his own estimate of his work in the sentence i do not know what i may appear to the world but to myself i seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me he was morbidly sensitive to being involved in any discussions i believe that with the exception of his papers on optics every one of his works was published only under pressure from his friends and against his own wishes there are several instances of his communicating papers and results on condition that his name should not be published thus when in sixteen sixty nine he had at collier's request solved some problems on on the harmonic series and on annuities which had previously baffled investigation he only gave permission that his results should be published so it be as he says without my name to it for i see not what there is desirable in public esteem were i able to acquire and maintain it it would perhaps increase my acquaintance the thing which i chiefly study to decline in intellect he has never been surpassed and probably never been equalled of this his extant works are the only proper test perhaps the most wonderful single illustration of his powers was the composition in seven months of the first book of the principia as specific illustrations of his ability i may mention his solutions of the problems of pappus of john bernoulli's challenge and of the question of orthogonal trajectories the problem of pappus is to find the locus of a point such that the rectangle under its distances from two different straight lines shall be in a given ratio to the rectangle under its distances from two other given straight lines many geometricians from the time of apollonius had tried to find a geometrical solution and had failed but what had proved insuperable to his predecessor seemed to have presented little difficulty to newton who gave an elegant demonstration as that the locus was a conic geometry said lagrange was when recommending the study of analysis to his pupils is a strong bow but it is one which only a newton could fully utilize as another example i may mention that in sixteen ninety six john bernoulli challenged mathematicians one to determine the brachistochrone and two to find a curve such that if any line drawn from a fixed point o cut it in p and q then o p to the power n plus q o q to the power n would be a constant 
Leibniz solved the first of these questions after an interval of rather more than six months, and then suggested that they should be sent as a challenge to Newton and others. Newton received the problems on January 29, 1697, and the next day gave the complete solutions of both, at the same time generalizing the second question. An almost exactly similar case occurred in 1716, when Newton was asked to find the orthogonal trajectory of a family of curves. In five hours, Newton solved the problem in the form in which it was propounded to him, and laid down in the principles for finding trajectories. It is almost impossible to describe the effect of Newton's writings without being suspected of exaggeration, but if the state of mathematical knowledge in 1669, or at the death of Pascal or Fermat, be compared with what was known in 1687, it will be seen how immense was the advance. In fact, we may say that it took mathematicians half a century or more before they were able to assimilate the work with which Newton produced in those twenty years. In pure geometry, Newton did not establish any new methods, but no modern writer has shewn the same power in using those of classical geometry. In algebra and the theory of equations, he introduced the system of literal indices, established the binomial theorem, created no cons inconsiderable part of the theory of equations. One rule which he enunciated in this subject remained, till a few years ago, an unsolved riddle, which had overtaxed the resources of succeeding mathematicians. In analytical geometry, he introduced the modern classification of curves into the algebraical and transcendental, and established many of the fundamental properties of asymptotes, multiple points, and isolated loops, illustrated by a discussion of cubic curves. The fluxional or infinitesimal calculus was invented by Newton in or before the year 1666, and circulated in manuscripts amongst his friends in and after the year 1669, though no account of the method was printed till 1693. The fact that the results are nowadays expressed in a different notation has led to Newton's investigations on this subject being somewhat overlooked. Newton further was the first to place dynamics on a satisfactory basis, and from dynamics he deduced the theory of statics. This was in the introduction to the Principia, published in 1687. The theory of attractions, the application of the principles of mechanics to the solar system, the creation of physical astronomy, and the establishment of the law of universal gravitation, are wholly due to him, and were first published in the same work. The particular questions connected with the motion of the earth and the moon were worked out as fully as was then possible. The theory of hydrodynamics was created in the second book of the Principia, and he added considerably to the theory of hydrostatics, which may be said to have been first discussed by Pascal. The theory of the propagation of waves, and in particular the application to determine the velocity of sound, is due to Newton and was published in 1687. In geometrical optics he explained, amongst other things, the decomposition of light and the theory of the rainbow. He invented the reflecting telescope, known by his name, and the sextant. 
in physical optics he, suge he suggested and elaborated the emission theory of light the above list does not exhaust the subjects he investigated but it will serve to illustrate how marked was his influence on the history of mathematics on his writings and on their effects it will be enough to quote the remarks of two or three of those who were subsequently concerned with the subject matter of the principia lagrange described the principia as the greatest production of the human mind and said that he felt dazed that such an illustration of what a man's intellect might be capable in describing the effect of his own writings and those of laplace it was a favorite remark of his that newton was not only the greatest genius that had ever existed but he was also the most fortunate for as there is but one universe it can happen but to one man in the world's history to be the interpreter of its laws laplace who is in general very sparing of his praise makes of newton the one exception and the words in which he enumerates the causes which will always assure the principia's a pre-eminence above all other productions of the human intellect have often been quoted no less remarkable is the homage rendered by gauss for other great mathematicians or philosophers he used the epithets magnus or clarus or clarissimus for newton alone he kept the prefix summus finally biot who had made a special study of newton's works sums up his remarks by saying comme géométrie et comme expérimentateur newton est sans égal par la réunion de ces deux genres de génie et leur plus haut degré elle est sans exemple End of section 26. Recording by Paul King, Oakville, Ontario. pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj.